Welcome back to the Manufacturing Come Up. I'm Malachi Greb, host of the Manufacturing Come Up. Today, we have a awesome guest, Jason Avito, and he was an entrepreneur by the age of 16 years old. Let's go. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Glad to have you on. So why don't you go ahead and uh, start off by like giving people a rundown of, of kind of who you are and where you're currently at uh, in the industry. So currently, I'm the chief strategy officer for a private equity firm called uh, MRCA. It stands for the Manufacturing Revitalization Corporation of America. It's a mouthful, but really it, it says what our purpose and our goal is, is to go into legacy American manufacturing companies. We purchase them and then we revitalize them. It, there's a lot of influences going in right now that are buying American manufacturing companies that don't necessarily have the best of the community, the employees, the country in their sites. So we're, our focus is, is really coming into these really strong, good manufacturing companies, getting on the ground floor, working with the teams, and building them up to compete in the modern era of what is now manufacturing. Hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, actually, I, I almost never talk about this one, but uh, one of the strategies of elite automation and our global growth is to at some point, it might be 10, 15, 20 years from now, but uh, is to either operate or acquire a company similar to what you guys do and, and flip manufacturing companies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's um. There's there's a special group of ty uh, types of people that go in and really we don't flip them. We we actually what our strategy is is we buy the companies, we interconnect them, but still let them keep their their brand, their legacy that made them cool for 30, 40 years. Sure. And then actually, our exit for the, for the fund is we are doing a one hundred percent employee st uh, stock ownership program. So we will actually exit the fund and liquidate for the investors by selling it to the, or giving it basically to the employees so that American manufacturing employees actually own the factories again. Hmm. Interesting. How, how are you able to, to create that transaction? So it's, it's actually a piece of uh, us tax code uh, partially, but we, we bring in a third party, usually going to be an insurance company that actually buys the shares and then for mm -hmm. say 10 years it's a 100 profit share so all of the profit from the company goes to pay down that note with the insurance company and after that 10 years the the notes paid off the insurance companies made their their piece and the company now owns itself on behalf of the employees and the employees shares of the company is largely based on the 10 year within which they were with the company mm. nice Nice. Gotcha. Yeah. I think that whole entire uh, realm of the industry is, is very interesting um, through, through like working in automation. There's been quite a few times where uh, we've been working on projects and like while working on projects, like an acquisition of that company happens. And then, and then, and then also <laughs> there'll be like a lot more automation too, because of the acquisition. Cause like a lot of times that's what we'll see is, you know, every acquisition company has like a strategy on how they make the business operate better. Uh, and some of them definitely have that strategy of we buy the company, we find a bunch of manual processes, we automate them. And then now we have a much more profitable company. What they decide to do after that, those are all different as well, as you probably know. 
Yeah, we've got a similar view. Uh, when we go into a company, the first thing we look at is process. It's And that's what every manufacturing person says. But really, it's, hey, find those things that it's a 30, 40-year-old company. Well, why do you do it that way? Because that's how we do it. <laughs> and you're like, okay. <laughs> so we work yeah. with that. And once we can kind of get that trust and, and that build and, and the process down, then it's an overlay of automation to double down on those efforts. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of things that like you look at like operations. I mean, I, I think automation a lot because that's like where we're at. Right. But, uh, I mean, we'll walk in some facilities and I'm like, you're like, Holy cow. You're just looking around and there's like, you've walked past like hundreds of employees and they're just like kind of just doing this all day. And you're <laughs> like, why, you know, why is that still like that? And, uh, so it's, it's definitely interesting to, to see how much development still needs to go into the industry. Yeah. It's, and just mindset change. Um, we one of the things we tell a lot of people, especially being a a hundred percent American manufacturers, is automation is not there to take your job. It's actually there to give you your job back. It it is the competitive advantage that we can take over low wage countries. Is if we can make American workers more effective and take away pain off their bodies, take away all the things that monotonous tasks do. And we, we constantly have to educate, go, hey, the automation is the reason why we can do this in the U.S. a lot of times. So it's 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 a symbiotic partnership, not a, a risk. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <clears throat> so to go ahead and kind of kick these things up, this thing off, uh, why don't you go ahead and take us back to the past as a as a young entrepreneur? Let me know how that one worked out. OK, so I, I got to start the story back at the, it begins and, and really it I'll, I'll tell you a story coming from three different sides so first off i grew up in a household my father worked in factories uh we were it was the classic case of the employees and the management had so much turmoil that it was almost impossible to run the plant yet this the plant he worked for was the most profitable plant in the country for no matter what company owned it and they had the oldest machinery, the, but they had the best working force. And they had actually relatively good management, but the two couldn't function together. So this plant in the last seven years that my father worked there, they laid off the employees six or seven times because a new group would come in and buy it because the management teams were like, I can't manage this group. And you saw this turnover, but I saw it from my side. I saw what it was doing to my dad. I saw it. I mean, th there's, there's never a good day to get a pink slip. It is. Right. So we watched all of that going on. So I, I've got to set the stage. It is, I'm starting our first company with my brother in February of 2007. Hmm. And it, we're, I'm 15 years old. He's 20. We decide we're going to go into apparel manufacturing. And at the time it was, Hey, we're going to print t-shirts. And what happens is as we're getting in, my dad, our whole lives is stay out of manufacturing, stay out of anything like that, become an engineer, become a lawyer, become a doctor, become a banker, do anything except for going to this industry. And we didn't listen. It was just, you know what? We're out for, we got this and we're young and nothing to lose. So we start this company. And at the exact same time, we're watching our dad go through what, through where he works. And like I said, it's February of 2007. So right as our company's getting off the ground, 
here comes fall of 2007, early 2008, and all markets crash. It's just the, there's just blood in the streets. And we are, we have started at 15, just printing t-shirts. And mm -hmm. what we're doing at the time is t-shirts for family reunions, uh, so, some little giveaway, uh, just things that you do when you have disposable income. Yeah. Well, suddenly nobody has disposable income. So <laughs> my brother and I kind of look at each other and everyone's telling us, Hey, get out of the business. You, this was stupid. you you, it's an uphill battle, but heard everything under the sun. And one person messes up and tells me specifically, don't do it. You'll lose everything you have. And it snaps me out of it. I'm like, wait, I'm 15, 16 years old. What do I have? Like you're, <laughs> you're putting on me, your fear, not, not, not my own personal fear. I, I have nothing to lose. So what we decide is that if we want to really get to the next level and to really have a business in our hands, we need to actually start manufacturing, not just printing t-shirts. And we end up getting into custom sewn apparel. We are doing some of the craziest decoration you've seen, developing our own ink uh, or developing in partnership, our own ink systems, really focusing in on how does manufacturing, Kaizen, One Piece Flow, every other buzzword that was going on in, in those eras. And how do we integrate those? But then we go back to watching what's going on with my father. And he's getting laid off over and over again. This plant finally ends up actually closing. And we made a promise for, that no matter what system we were developing, our goal was to have it be human-centric. And that in, in the manufacturing world, the, when, when the U.S. lost manufacturing, it was, it was surely because of humans. It was another set of countries brought in low-wage low labor and beat – the human price to human price. Well, if you take care yeah. of humans, then maybe you can beat the human to human issue. And mm -hmm. from there, we spurred into a, a retail display company, a sheet, uh, a sheet metal plant, injection molding, uh, you name it, because that manufacturing platform and that, that rule set that we created, being human-centric, being process-centric, adapts to all types of manufacturing. So it kind of – that's how we end up getting into this point where we buy legacy companies and go revitalize them is because that formula that we created, it works across mm -hmm. the entire entire industry. Gotcha. So I guess – so you guys eventually got into acquiring different companies. Is that how that works? Yeah. So when we started the retail display company, one of the things that we realized was that we didn't like dealing with a lot of our vendors. So the, a lot of people's lead times were either too long or you couldn't trust them. Their quality was sometimes questionable. So we decided, oh, you know what, then we'll do that ourselves. We'll do that ourselves. Right. Well, one day it finally clicked that we didn't necessarily need to build ourselves every time. We had to go buy people who had built great companies and use that to add to our, uh, our ecosystem. Gotcha. So we started making that pivot that truly now we, we pretty much just buy good companies and make them better. Gotcha. Mm, very interesting. Very interesting. <clears throat> what, uh, I guess, what was you guys' first acquisition? Or I guess, hold on, let me take it back a little bit further first. 
whenever you guys started to transition from like t-shirts to uh, kind of your next thing, what was that, ne- that next step? The next step was retail displays. So this is coming in right around 2009, 2010. The economy okay. is starting to rebound. Products are starting to get back on the shelves. People are starting to buy again. And there's a huge competition for eyes in, in store. So there was this transition point and we were brought in for the first product, little tiny project. It was 34 units for a client. And we were brought in to just try to grab people's eyes and make it more interesting. Well, we, we had never been in the industry, so we weren't jaded at all. And we start going, Hey, let's try this. And let's put a video screen in it. Let's put capacitive sensors. Let's have it track this. Well, it grew really well because everybody was fighting for those eyes back now that the economy started having disposable income again. Sure. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure how that space works, but like, say for instance, like your, your end cap at Walmart, right? Like I would bet that like somebody probably pays for that end cap at, at Walmart and that's part of their, their brand strategy and there's competition for that. And, and let's go into like what you're doing Maybe you're like, okay, well, everybody's doing end caps. Let's do this other thing that nobody else is doing. And that gives you like a leverage of competition. So there is a, there is a very well-known big uh, box club store that we had a client. And now you walk into this club store and every time you walk in, they have their electronics department everywhere. And there's things buzzing and clicking and all that. Well, in 2010 or 11, that was not the case. You'd go to the electronics department. They had a couple TVs that were on, but everything else was, was just pictures. Mm. So we walked in and said, hey, I want to take this product, and it was a, a, a client's product, and I want, to, I want to put a video screen with it. And I want to put this big flashing red button on it. Mm. And they're like, yeah, we don't have electricity in that, in that sector of the warehouse, so no, it's not going to happen. And then we went back, like, but we really want to. like please give us an extension cord just let us try well the the retailer buys three to six months of product at a time and the po's done so we get uh, we we finally get them to agree to let us put this big flashing red button and a tv screen well we sat at the store and said okay let's see if our idea works if it didn't work our client was going to kill us so we're sitting at the store just kind of creepily watching this display and nonstop people dr- walk by it, look at the button. And what are you going to do? Not press a big red flashing button. So they touch it and the screen starts talking to you and stuff. And they look at the product and the price point was good. And they'd grab, put it in their cart and walk away. Well, they sold out of three, th- I think it was three months of stock in a week and a half. Mm. <laughs> and nice. We get a call from our client all pissed off. And they're like, like what what happened there we sold through all the product and now we have a huge problem and this and we're like wait so we're getting yelled at for doing our jobs and they're like you should have told us it was going to work that well we're the first ones to do it what are you talking about yeah right so but it really was taking kind of that manufacturing work and so in that display we had sheet metal we had printing we had uh plastic work we had electronic sub-assemblies we had television screens. Like there was so many different types of manufacturing that went into it. And that's what started making us realize more and more 
how many different divisions of the industry we were really servicing at any given time because these weren't simple things. I mean, it, we were, we were pushing the line on them. And when that started, when that started really clicking with us, we're like, Oh wait, so net, we don't have a retail display company. We have a sheet metal company. We've got a plastics company, but I'm like, mm. Oh, that's weird. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. So you, do you guys kind of go from like, uh, I guess you're, producing your own product right and then and then you look at it you go we have all the things to produce more than just our own product and from there started to grow correct Uh, and really once we have all the skill sets you start realizing wait i i can just make this or i make that or our going joke is we've made everything from children's toys to the control panel for nuclear reactors hmm it's the, 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 the breadth of what our team has done is just crazy. It, 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 there's, there's not a lot of people who can say they've made that width of products. And yeah. it's not like we made a component for the children's toy or a component for that control panel. We actually made the entire control panel and the entire toy. Interesting. Interesting. So you're doing all those things in-house then? What? Are you doing all those things in house then? So yeah, we uh, and t- till this day the control panels we still do in house. Uh, the children's toys we've um, that program now has since ended. But yeah, we, it was that was all done in house. It with of course a couple subcontractors doing sub components, but the the bulk of everything is is within our own facilities. Gotcha. Very interesting. So did, I mean, did you guys kind of like start transitioning into like? getting contracts for just kind of some, some like random things. Like how did you get into toys? I, a friend was at our offices and he goes, this thing came across my desk. Are, are you willing to try? And I look at it and I'm like, doesn't look that hard. So I go, I, I, I was like, you know what? Let's, let's meet tomorrow. So I come back the next day and I've got an entire line layout and how we're going to cut it, how we're going to do this. Have it, and I present it to him. I'm like, we can do X amount of pieces an hour per line uh, if we go like this. And, but, and he goes, all I ask is if you can do it. I'm like, yeah, I wanted to know I could do it before I said yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because like people don't take into effect like how much resources and, and how much work can actually go into making the process happen. And is it is it even feasible? Yeah, it's uh, – the, the typical person underestimates how hard it is to make one thing, much less thousands and thousands and thousands of things. Mm, absolutely. Going back to, to kind of how you came up and transitioned, did you, from what it sounds like, you've, you've never really had to go and enter the, your standard traditional career path. It seems like no, I, I, I've never interviewed for a job in my life. That's interesting. I've actually, I, I'll go a step further. I, to my recollection, I don't think I've ever been on an, another person's payroll. Interesting. That's super crazy. Cause I, I think about that sometimes too. Now I'm like, it's highly likely I will never do a job interview again, you know? And especially like, I ironically, like the manufacturing come up is like about people going through the, the career process. Right. 
<laughs> so it's kind of an interesting dynamic. <laughs> well, a, I went through it in a, in a slightly different way, though. So one of the most fortunate parts about starting as young as I did was for all intents and purposes, I was interviewing with my se- with my seniors. So got, usually guys who are, have left the industry or just about to leave the industry. And I would go work and help them after I'd convinced them that I was worthy of their time, energy, and mentorship. And they would show me the path to get to where I was going. So it was very much like coming up through a career path. The difference was I was doing it not for money with them. I was doing it for for knowledge and for skill. This episode of The Manufacturing Come Up is sponsored by Elite Automation. Elite Automation is focusing on AMR technologies. AMRs are autonomous mobile robots used in your facility to transfer goods or products from one side of your facility to the other. This is a super powerful tool and it's a new piece of technology that us as systems integrators can utilize as a tool to leverage your company to be more advanced than the next company and be able to automate systems that at one point were not able to be automated. If you have any AMR needs, you can reach us at rfq at eliteautomationusa.com. Yeah, yeah, that's very, very important. I think one of my biggest pieces of my career success came from like that willing to like sacrifice to learn. That's a huge deal. I I was watching a podcast like just yesterday or something like that. And the one guy, he basically said it's unfashionable to work for free. And it kind of rubbed me wrong. And I do, I do agree. Like, you know, especially with like the legality side of things like that, but like, and just morally, but like a huge part of my, my growth was like you said, I, you know, working for these individuals for free. It was, I, you know, for my entire career, every bit of my career, I made $5 an hour under industry standard. And I did that because I knew I was gaining a knowledge. Well, and I, I think you hit something important there. It's not for free. For free is if somebody says, hey, go muck out the, the horse stall mm-hmm. and then walks back inside the house. Hey, you're not learning anything there. If yeah. You're working for knowledge. I, and I will, I will trade knowledge for money almost any time I can get it because Absolutely. you – you, you can't buy knowledge. It, it, it just it, you watch a lot of people go to college and all this stuff, and they're they're trying to buy knowledge, but they, right. you can't. It, it, you, there, there's nothing like sitting next to a guy who has done it his entire life, mm-hmm. and he'll try to explain to you how he's doing it, and you and you'll do exactly what he told you to do, and then no 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 no. See your hand is five degrees off. <laughs> well, but you didn't tell me that. I didn't yeah. know my hand sits like this. But when I saw you do it, I knew it was wrong. <laughs> like, you can't yeah. pay for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's like <clears throat> when it comes to knowledge, there's such a huge portion of that. That's the shortening of time, right? Like you have going to college, right, which is questionable, a, a good investment as far as like the time to education ratio right? Like how much do you learn uh, to a, to real world practical skills while in college versus like, if you just go take some mastermind classes or you go sit with somebody and, and, and work with them for a year straight and you're able to be side by side with them, the, the time compression on that knowledge is so significant. 
Yeah, and and the other part of it is then I have brought it up to a lot of people because people are like, well, why, why should I work for free? And I said, okay, knowledge is important, but what they're also doing is saving you a crap ton of money in mistakes mm. because there have been plenty of times we are about to make a mistake in one of our companies or in one of our processes and some old mentor will come up on my shoulder and be like, I told you five years ago, don't do this because here's what will happen. And you're like, crap. Okay, no, no, don't do that. Let's go this direction. <laughs> and, you, and you look back in, in hindsight, you're like, oh, that would have been a $30,000 mistake. <laughs> I'm so glad that I, 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 I had learned that already. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And another thing too, I want to, that I want to touch on too, is like, do be careful. Like if you're, if you're getting that value and you're getting that, uh, or you're taking the sacrifice, I should say, if you're taking that sacrifice that you make sure to actually get the value in return, get the education in return. You, you mentioned it, you know, cleaning the stalls out is not part of that education, unless you're going to be a, like a vet or something. Maybe yeah. there's some small <laughs> aspect of that. Right. Um, <clears throat> But yeah, like, like, and, and I've seen this throughout my career where somebody was hired at a, a very low salary to uh, be like an engineering apprentice, uh, maybe like a programming apprentice. And then that person ends up being the, the individual who's cleaning the toilets or, or doing some weird construction job or go clean the warehouse. And it's like, you know, at that point, that's like, an, that is an abuse of that, that learning. And you need to make sure as you're coming up through anything that who you believe is your mentor and who's there to help you has agreed to it. So yeah. I, I'll give you a story. My, my father calls me it's about two, three years ago. And there's a kid, very, very bright kid, really like him. Uh, and he goes, hey, uh, I would like you to mentor, uh, mentor him. Yeah, dad, I, I, I'm not doing that. He goes, Jason, you've always, you've been, you've always been okay with these good kid and stuff. I'm like, no dad. So the problem is it's not that I don't want to, I know my current schedule. I know my current workload. Mm -hmm. I will not be able to mentor him correctly. I mm -hmm. will not be able to give him the time of day. So all I will end up doing is putting him on grunt work for me, but yeah. that's not what he needs nor what he wants. So I'm going to politely bow out. Now in a year or two or six months, if my schedule changes or my travel schedule changes or I have an opportunity, I'd love to. Mm. So this is something I was told very early on in my career. Don't just assume somebody is your mentor. Mm. Like you, you must get them to give the buy-in because it's a lot of work to mentor somebody. This yeah. is not – it. like if you're doing it correctly, I, I've, got, I've got some wonderful mentors that – they can sense when things are going wrong sometimes before I can. And my phone starts ringing and they're like, Hey, uh, you're for the next two hours, you're doing this. Or I've even had it as far as, Hey, Jason. Um, uh, yeah, your head's not on straight right now. Uh, it we're, you'll, I will see you in Tulum, Mexico in two weeks. And we're going to, we're going to do a three day putting your head back on straight. And mm. you're like, well, no, I'm not, it's not that bad. They're like, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I've been keeping tabs on you. You need, <laughs> we, we need to go work on some stuff. So yeah. th that is, I, I see this all too often where people are like, but you, you didn't mentor me. And I'm like, I didn't agree to that. Like, <laughs> cause if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it with the same passion and fight that I would 
running my companies or anything else. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's definitely super powerful. You said making that commitment, you know, getting them to make that commitment or, or, or making sure it's very clear. Like I'm thinking, you know, one mentorship. I don't know that I've really had like pure mentorship ever where I said, Hey, like, will you be my mentor? And somebody's like, yeah. Uh, it's probably a good idea that maybe I make that ask with some people, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, a lot of my mentors have came from like people on YouTube, you know, your Gary Vanderchucks and, you know, Patrick David, all these guys. Right. And these guys are huge mentors to me. And, uh, but I, I've not, I never had that, that true mentor. So like one, you got to make the ask Two, make sure that, that, that line is clearly defined as far as like, especially if you're going for a job interview. Right. And, and you know that like you're making a, like maybe a pay sacrifice uh, for, for knowledge that, Hey, if you guys are hiring me for this position as a apprentice engineer, I need X amount of my time being spent towards that only. Right. And or or at very least go forward and go, Hey, by the end of the year, here's where I would like to be. Mm. Because there are some times that your mentor, as long as you're on the same page, that your mentors go, Hey, Go, go muck the stalls. Yeah, I don't want it. Yeah, you know how many times a day I don't want to do stuff that I have to do? Go do it. And <laughs> there is a, there's a method to their madness. But you yep. know it's headed. And very clear deliverables with each other and understanding, hey, I, I want you but in trends, what I would, I would appreciate if I, you can embody on me. Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And it really is like, you know, it's having that open form of communication too. Like if you're okay with 20 hours of the, of, of the actual training time and 20 hours of the, uh, of the bullshit job time, right. Then, then that's fine. As long as that's what your, your agreement is. And also too, like depending on the, on the level of the business and also the, the position that you're mentoring for, right. If, this company has 20, 30, 100, 200 engineers, you know, that that's kind of a little bit different than if there's three engineers, right? Yeah. And, and now the, one of these three engineers is having to mentor you, or are you wanting mentorship from the owner of the company? Uh, all those things will definitely be playing a role in, uh, you know, the, the level of commitment that company has to give to you or that person has to give to you. Yeah. Well, and, and also, the one thing I tell people all the time is listen to your mentors. I had, um, I had a mentor of mine. I, I, up until that moment, I had been the CEO of every company that I ever run. Mm. And he, uh, we're, we're sitting there, we're talking and he's a very, very brash individual. Love him dearly, but, uh, he does not mince words whatsoever. Trust me. Eh, you're going to make a shit CEO. Mm. <laughs> I'm like, Wow. Thanks, bud. And I'm like, and it kind of just deflates me. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. What? You're not going to ask what I think you should do? I'm like, well, at this point, I'm thinking clean toilets or something, buddy. He goes, yeah. like, that one hurts. Give me a second. <laughs> he goes, you're one of the strongest chairmen of the board I've, uh, I've seen coming up. And I'm like, explain. At the time, I didn't really understand the difference. He goes, one is the strategy, one is the execution. 
Mm. He goes, to, he goes, your, well, he goes, your skill is over here and how to get teams together and build the right leaders to do it. Mm. He goes, but the day-to-day operations, he goes, you're going to, he goes, over time, you're going to become burnt out on that. Mm-hmm. And it stuck with me. And fast forward a year or two, start getting burned out. And I'm like, oh, wow, you were right. He goes, mm. yeah, no shit. <laughs> and you're just like, <laughs> Good. but it took that, ha- that tough love of what I thought I was yeah. training to be. He's <clears> like, no, no, no. This is where you need to be. And it, it completely changed trajectories for, for us. And frankly, our company started doing better because of it. Hmm. What was, uh, I guess, your, your thought in, in somebody used to happen to take that CEO position, right? Like, what was your thoughts and what were the things that you were looking for in that? So it, it, it's hard to fill. And every organization is different. And, and there's different times in history for, uh, of a company for certain CEOs. So let's take, okay, let's take Apple. Probably the most, the best example of this, I think, in modern history. Uh-huh. They needed to be rebellious. They needed to be crazy. They needed to invent a space that did not exist. Uh-huh. Steve Jobs, CEO. Uh-huh. This thing is taken off way too fast. We need to get it somewhere under control. We don't know where it's going. We don't know where the uh, we don't know where the economy is going. Things are really weird. He cannot be CEO anymore, and he starts crashing the company. He brings in a stabilizing CEO. That stabilizing CEO stays way too long. This episode of the Manufacturing Come Up is sponsored by Elite Automation. Elite Automation is a systems integrator specializing in robotic weld cell applications, and especially the design and manufacturing of the weld fixture. If you have any robotic weld cell needs, you can reach us at RFQ at EliteAutomationUSA.com. They bring back jobs because, hey, the the markets are back. It's time to, that people have adopted the product well. Mm-hmm. We need to take this to the new next level and find more, yeah. find more products, develop mm-hmm. more crazy stuff, bring back jobs. Jobs passes away and puts Cook in. Cook is an amazingly efficient CEO and a stabilizer. Mm-hmm. He does more for that company fiscally than any CEO in its history ever did. But without that series and that changing and following the season that the company's in, yeah, they would they would be broke and would have gone bankrupt. So yeah. when you're looking for somebody to run a company, what you're looking for is where is that company at in that life cycle? And yep. you also can't get married to the person all the time because they, there will come a time where they're no longer the right person in the life cycle of the company. It's one of the things I love about MRCA is we, as we acquire more and more, we've got different life cycles. And you, it allows people to go, hey, I'm actually like this or I'm like that. And I want to go, I want to go play over here or go do this. And, and th- that's where it really gets successful. And you watch that yeah. with um, like Berkshire's amazing about this. They will trade their CEOs internally. It, it's a great project. Yeah. Yeah, like you might have like a like a CEO that's, you know, good from that like hundred to thousand employee range, and then you have the thousand to ten thousand employee range, uh, just for number's sake and in a way of measurement, or or if you want to talk revenue, but uh, 
definitely CEOs, people who have those experiences and they're particularly good at this section of, of growth and life cycle of the company. And one of the things I always look for, so the, I, the best CEOs I've ever seen, the best managers in general, are very quiet until they're not. Hmm. They will sit back. They will listen. They will, they will, they, they will absorb. Hmm. And the second they speak, they command presence. Hmm. And they do not mince their words. They're not necessarily rude, but they are very much, here is my analysis of what just happened and where I believe we are going. And that is a skill set that is, it, it's not easy to find. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's like something that <clears throat> even for myself, like I'm trying to grow into more and more. Our COO is actually like much better at, at that type of thing where it's like, you know, there'll be a thing that happens. I want to mention something about it. And he's like, we'll just sit and we'll wait. Let's sit and wait and observe a little bit longer. And so I'm picking up on those things very, very quickly. And uh, yeah, it'll be interesting because like, you know, I never thought about not being CEO. Um, I'm also very visionary. I'm, I'm, if anything, I'm the worst, I'd probably the worst person to operate now, I believe than into the future because I'm trying to do future things and we're not quite there yet. And uh, yeah, so it's just, it's going to be very interesting to see how that, that roadmap maps out. Definitely. It's, it's a, it's a ride. <laughs> Absolutely. Jason, we're running out of time here. What do you have any valuable last points for the community? The biggest thing I can say, especially as you're coming up, you're going to get a lot of people that tell you not to do it. Why, why it's a bad idea. Don't put the hours in. You got to cut the noise. It's mm -hmm. that people will convince you to stay low and mediocre your entire life. Hmm. I definitely agree with you. There's the, the, the amount of population that is um, risk averse and willing to take, take the different path. I mean, it's probably 1% or less. Um, yeah. It's definitely something that needs more, more light shed on for sure. Awesome. Jason, where, where can people find you at? Best way is go to mrca.net. There's actually a way on there to get directly on my calendar. Uh, if uh, if you're looking on social, LinkedIn backslash MRCA, it's the best way to kind of keep up with what all of us are doing and yep. just find out kind of cool stuff that's going on in the industry. Awesome. Thank you, awesome. Jason. I appreciate you. having you on today. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you.